today's scripture reading is Acts chapter 10, verses 34 to 43. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the word of the Lord. Christ is risen. Happy Easter. Easter. Easter is unlike any other occasion in North America. It's not like Christmas or Valentine's or Halloween. Easter doesn't have a clear meaning in the world at large. So people who are not churchgoers don't necessarily know how to understand or celebrate Easter. I read a discussion on the internet. One person was very angry indeed about Easter, as people sometimes are on the internet. He said that Christians force this holiday on other people, to which a lot of people responded something along the lines of, well, it's a free holiday, what are you complaining about? But it seemed to me as if this was the most positive thing anyone could think of to say about Easter, that it was a free holiday. I remember another Easter time, I was walking in my neighborhood with Helen, and I saw something I'd never seen before. Most holidays in North America are celebrated with lots and lots of decorations. 
but Easter, of course, is not. But there in front of us was a tree with eggs hanging from it on colored ribbons. It's, it's an attempt to celebrate something that isn't understood. Eggs, bunnies, chocolate. Most people know that Easter has more meaning than these, that it's something to do with Jesus. I saw a video of interviews done on the streets where the interviewer was asking what people thought Easter was about. And one person said, it's something to do with Jesus. I think he was born then. And the person next to him, no, no, he died then. And the two of them had an argument because they just didn't know. Well, the Christian celebration of Easter is about two events. The first event is the death of Jesus, an Israelite who was executed on a Roman cross. By biblical scholars' best estimates, this Easter, we're about five years short of the 2,000th anniversary of Jesus' death on the cross. And the second event, very soon after Jesus was crucified, his followers began telling anyone who would listen to them that they had seen him alive, that he had risen from the dead. And that has been the message of Easter these 2,000 years since. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. And an example of what those first Christians told people is in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, chapter 10, in those verses that were just read for us. In those few short verses, we have everything that we need to know about Easter and everything that's at the heart of the Christian faith. Through messages like this, thousands of people in Jerusalem, Israel, and beyond became followers of Jesus in a startlingly short space of time. And in the 20 centuries since, from all over the world, millions of people have put their faith in Jesus and become Christians. And this passage tells us the, the fundamental things about what it means to be a Christian and why faith in Jesus is so important. And the first thing that it tells us is that Christianity is rooted in actual historical events. Peter says, you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. See, he gives us places, times, people. See, Christianity is not a good idea about how to live well. It's not rules about life or a, a moral philosophy. It's not anyone's ideas about how we should and shouldn't live. It's not a philosophy at all like pragmatism or idealism or secularism or communism. It is based on real, historical, verifiable events. And that's why the New Testament is so concerned with witnesses. Remember what Peter said, we are witnesses of everything Jesus did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was seen by witnesses whom God had chosen. Witnesses are extremely important in the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament itself is the record of witnesses to the events it describes. 
Years and years later, Peter wrote this. We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. See, Christianity is based on real events that were witnessed by many people. So what were these events? Well, most of us are familiar with at least some of the events of Jesus' life. First, of course, there's his birth. There was a survey done a few years ago concerning Christmas in which 18% of those responding to the survey agreed with the statement that Santa was born in a manger. Well, it was Jesus who was placed in a manger when he was born. In fact, the Bible gives us lots and lots of details. It gives us the reason that he was placed there. It gives us a reason why he was born in the town in which he was born. It tells us who the Roman emperor was at the time and who the governor of the province was. All kinds of historical details that tell us about the birth of Jesus. And then we're told in the New Testament about the life of Jesus. Peter says in the passage that we read that he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. But the gospel writers are even more interested in what Jesus taught. And a key element of that teaching is that he taught that he was the Son of God. You sometimes hear people say, oh, Jesus, he was a good person. He was a good teacher. But that can't be true. It can't be true if Jesus claimed to be God, but he wasn't. As C.S. Lewis put, puts it, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. And Lewis goes on to say, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, However strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. God has landed on this enemy-occupied world in human form. Most important of all in understanding who Jesus is are his death and resurrection, the events of Easter. In the passage we read, Peter tells us they killed Jesus by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by we who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. The death and resurrection of Jesus are at the heart of the Christian faith. And Jesus' death was an extraordinary death not because it was by crucifixion. Hundreds of other people were executed by crucifixion in the Roman Empire that very same year. Shockingly, crucifixion was commonplace. No, what makes Jesus' death extraordinary is that he went to his death willingly. 
trusting that it was God's plan for him, he chose to die. And the Bible says that his death was for us. He died for you and for me. Why? Why is his death for us? The answer is that we have a problem, a problem that only Jesus' death can address. We were created by God to live in unbroken relationship with him and with one another. But we've broken those relationships. We're separated from a holy God by all of the wrong things that we think and say and do and by all of the good things that we do not do. And the Bible calls this sin. And sin separates us from God so that we do not know him at all. You may say, I'm not a bad person. I'm certainly not as bad as others, terrorists, murderers. But that's not the point. We're not measured against the goodness of others. We're measured against the goodness of God. It doesn't matter whether our grade is 4% or 49%, we've still failed the exam. And the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's standard is 100%. That's what it means to say that God is holy. And the truth is that most of us are aware that we're separated from God. Consciously or unconsciously, many, many of us try to bridge the gap. We do good things. We try to live a good life. We perhaps go to church or pray or even believe in God. But none of this is enough. None of this can bridge the gap caused by sin because none of it makes up for the wrong things that we've said and done and thought. And the Bible says that the punishment for sin is death. The passage that we read warns us that Jesus is coming again. He is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. There will come a day when we stand before God and we have to give an account of our lives to him. And all of us, all of us will fall short. How will any of us be able to pay the price for our sin? We need to be rescued from the judgment of God. And Christians talk about being saved. Saved from what? From the consequences, the punishment that we rightly deserve for our rejection of God and his purposes for our lives. In the United States at Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia, there's a gravestone with a simple inscription on it. It says, I want to stand where you're standing. And underneath those words, there's an extraordinary story that comes from an incident that occurred during the American Civil War. There was a Yankee soldier, he was 19 years old, and he was ordered to be part of a firing squad assigned to execute a man for treason. And he participated as he was supposed to, but when he aimed his gun, he saw that he recognized the man who they were about to execute. So he lowered his gun and he walked over to his captain and he said, I cannot do this. This man has a wife 
and children at home, and if I shoot him, I, I won't just end his life, I'll also end their lives too. I'll make his wife a widow, and I'll be robbing his children of their father. I cannot do it. So there was a short discussion, and he came up with a plan. He offered to take the condemned man's place. And that 19-year-old soldier marched up to the Confederate captive and told him he was free. He said, I want to stand where you're standing. And the captive took off his blindfold and walked away back to his wife and his family and his life. But his freedom came at great cost to another, the young man who willingly chose to die in his place. Jesus willingly gave his life on the cross to pay the price for your sins. Why? Love. Love for you. Love for you just as you are. Love for you even though you find yourself unlovely. He could have come down from the cross at any time but his love for you held him there, enduring the agony, not just the physical pain, but the anguish of being cut off from his heavenly Father as he took your sin and my sin on himself. Years later, Peter wrote, Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus' death on the cross enables us to go free, forgiven. In the passage we read, Peter says that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness. If we will allow him, he will reconcile us to God. This is the good news of peace with God through Jesus Christ. The stain of our sin, which meant that we could not come near to God, can be removed. Christianity is a relationship with God made possible through what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And the resurrection? The resurrection is the proof of this message. The Bible says God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. Why? To demonstrate that all that Jesus had taught about himself was true, that he was the Son of God, that our sin can be forgiven and our guilt removed that we can find purpose and meaning in our lives, that we can be reconciled to God. The author of the Alpha Course, Nicky Gumbel, says, the evidence for the physical resurrection is very strong indeed. When the disciples went to the tomb, they found the grave clothes had collapsed and Jesus' body was absent. In the next six weeks, he was seen by over 500 people. The disciples' lives were transformed and the Christian church was born and grew at a dramatic rate. A former Lord Chief Justice of England, Lord Darling, said of the resurrection, in its favor as living truth, there exists such overwhelming evidence 
positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. The only satisfactory explanation for these facts is that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead and thus confirms that he was and is the Son of God. I have uh, three books, each of which was written by a lawyer who became a Christian because of the overwhelming evidence they discovered for the resurrection. You see, if Jesus really was raised from the dead, then how could you not put your faith in him? The question, though, is not what others believe about Jesus and about the events of Easter. The question is, what do you believe? If you are aware that you fail to live up to God's standards, if you know that you don't have a relationship with God, that something is blocking it and you can't bridge the gap, if you want to know God's forgiveness, to be released from guilt, and restored to an unbroken relationship with him. And if you know deep down that the message of Easter is true, that Jesus died on the cross, suffering in your place the penalty that your sins deserve because of his love for you, if you know that Jesus is Lord of all and that he should be Lord of your life, then what is stopping you from turning your life over to him right now? Some people say, I don't need God. I'm happy as I am. But our greatest need is not happiness. It's forgiveness. One day we'll all face the judgment of God. And in that moment, the issue will not be how happy we made ourselves. Others think, God will make me give up too much. To you I say, God loves you. He only asks us to give up things that harm us or take over our lives. Nothing compares to a relationship with God. And the Apostle Paul said that everything else in his life was like garbage compared to knowing Jesus. Some people say, I'm not good enough. God would never want me. But the truth is that none of us are good enough. That's why Jesus came. He made it possible for God to accept us just as we are, whatever we've done, and however much of a mess we've made of our lives. Others say, I think it's true, but I'll do it later. I'm not ready yet. Ask any Christian. All of them will say that they wished they could have known him sooner. No one regrets inviting Jesus into their life too soon. See, Jesus is not offering a ticket to heaven that you can just grab at the last minute. He has a meaningful, fulfilling, challenging life of faith for you today. The Bible says God has good works prepared in advance for each of us to do. Why would you put off joining in God's purposes for your life for even one more hour? So how do people become Christians? You have something to admit, that you've fallen short of God's standards and failed to achieve God's purposes for your life. You need to repent, that is to turn around with God's help 
to turn away from sin. You need to trust that Jesus died for your sins on the cross, even if you don't fully understand all of what that means yet. You need to receive his forgiveness. And you need to invite him into your life. The Bible says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. Jesus is standing outside the door of your life and knocking, but the handle is on the inside. He will not force his way into your life. You must open the door and invite him in. Have you ever taken this step? Perhaps you never realized that there was anything for you to do. You can be baptized, confirmed, go to church, even read the Bible and pray, and still leave Jesus Christ outside of the door to your life. Face this question honestly then. Is Jesus outside your life or inside? Will you let him in? Or will you keep him out? You cannot ignore Jesus' invitation forever. You will know if God is speaking to you this afternoon. There is an uncomfortable feeling people have when they know that God is speaking to them. If that is you today, then I invite you to just pray a prayer with me. Just echo the words of this prayer in your heart and mind as I pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I need you. I know that I've lived my life my own way. I'm sorry, and I need your forgiveness. I'm willing to turn away from all that I know is wrong. I want to open up the door of my life to you. Thank you for dying on the cross in my place to pay the price for my sins. Thank you for your gift of forgiveness and new life demonstrated in the resurrection. I invite you to come into my life as Savior and Lord, as best as I know how, to be with me now and always. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer with me this afternoon, then I want to ask you to tell someone about this decision in the next 24 hours. Tell someone that you trust. If you came with someone today or if you know someone in this church, then tell them. But make sure that you tell someone. Second, I'd also like to give you a, a little booklet that will help you. There'll be, there'll be some of these for those who've prayed that prayer on the welcome table on the way out. Just pick one up. And if you'd like to pray with someone, when the service finishes, there'll be uh, people at the front here uh, to pray in this area just here to pray with you at the end of the service. God bless you. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.